0: Welcome to IMTV Radio, bringing you the latest analysis from Socialist Appeal, the British section of the International Marxist Tendency. For regular updates, subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud or iTunes, or visit www.socialist.net. So the the nature of consciousness is uh, the key question in philosophy. And... um, the, the difficulties in com- coming to an understanding of it, and there's no real agreement as to how consciousness arises um, in science. The difficulty science has of explaining this is used, uh, by, um, is used by the idealist, the philosophical idealist, uh, by religious people, etc. to spread doubt about materialist philosophy and to suggest that actually the soul really does exist. So we need to have an answer to this. Uh, And I think it's a a philosophical question and a political question, actually, more than necessarily a scientific one. And Science has answered so many things, but there is one real area where where it seems to have real difficulties, and that is over this question, the question of consciousness. Uh, It doesn't really seem to be able to understand it, I think. When you you read the scientific uh, journals, when they discuss it, you find that it's very unsatisfying. And I think this is ultimately... Bec- I mean, of course, there's a lack of data. Uh, in the st- you know, there are still things that haven't yet been recorded. or f- you know, We don't quite have sensitive enough MRI scans and things like that. But I don't think that's the real reason for it. it I think it comes down to capitalism. Because under capitalist society, we do not control our fate uh, as a society or as a species. And we, we find that we can't connect thoughts with action. And that social problems... Uh, which we are perfectly able to understand and see as, as very bad things. For instance, problems that we read in the newspapers almost every day, inequality rising, homelessness rising, you know, all these kinds of problems which we register year after year, we acknowledge them as these festering problems. but We don't seem to be able to do anything. It's not even just that we don't do enough. We don't even seem to be able to begin solving these things, right? So there seems to be a disconnect between what we understand and and what we're able to do. We don't seem to be able to put our ideas into practice uh, under capitalist society. Society begins to seem out of control uh, and, and impossible really to understand how it works, even though it's nothing other than a human affair. It's not created by anything other than ourselves. And there is, of course, a coherent explanation for why these things happen, and that is Marxism. But of course, Marxism is you know, officially wrong. You're not, you're not supposed to really uh, discuss that or take it seriously. It's ignored and it's slandered in a systematic way. And therefore, as a result, people are denied access to the real explanation for these things. And therefore, consciousness is, is, is inhibited in this, in this way. Also, scientists, I think, um, tend not to understand the real basis for thought. And this is really the, the essence of what I'm going to talk about. Uh, which is society. Um, they tend to treat the, the basis for thought as just the <coughs> atomized nervous system, right? And therefore, if you just study that in enough detail, you'll fully understand consciousness. And I think this is because under capitalism, science has a circumscribed and narrow character. Uh, it is treated as a, in a purely quantitative way, you know, let, bring us re- results, give us the hard data. Uh, it doesn't really have a very deep philosophical approach, usually. Uh, And it's obviously quite profit-driven and and based on short-term results. And therefore, science tends to languish in a kind of mechanical materialism that also reflects the kind of bourgeois outlook uh, that dominates in society as well, a very individualistic outlook. Uh, And so this inhibits the understanding of consciousness, as as I'll describe. And I think also um, it's... it leads to these fears that we have about AI, uh, the, the, the rise of AI and the notion that um, soon we might have a competitor, an artificial competitor that will either just drive us out of jobs or even worse, uh, eliminate us as a species because it will be superior to us. And I think that this, these fears, or well, certainly the latter fear, uh, is, is quite stupid uh, when you actually really understand what consciousness is all about. Um, but that's, that seems to be absent from the discussion. Um, so, quant- to answer what consciousness is, I think, is a question that is bound up in how we, how we understand ourselves and society. How society can, can comprehend what it needs to do and take decisions. Um, and because thought is, all about, is about generalizing human experience and uh, life as a whole, then, of course, the lack of an understanding of, of uh, life as a whole under capitalism would inevitably inhibit um, how we understand it. And I would propose that to really understand consciousness, we have to start from a historical and and a social understanding of consciousness. We have to understand how humanity developed and gradually built up its consciousness and its ideas about itself. And we also have to understand humanity is a living thing. And and I'll explain the significance of that uh, later. Rather than looking at it as if it pops up Uh, in a finished form in each isolated individual just as a product of their nervous system in isolation which is how the the materialist philosophers and the scientists uh, have tended to look at it. Uh, For example, before Marx uh, philosophers, when tackling this question um, based themselves uh, especially on formal logic and and again on a bourgeois outlook and on an individualistic outlook. They attempted to answer the question for example, Descartes you know, in this very kind of um, rigid way. And what I mean by formal logic is an approach which attempts to define things, you know, that attempts to sort of put things in boxes and say, well, this is this, you know, and to sort of freeze them in time and to isolate them from everything else, as if that's the real way of understanding something, rather than seeing things in their motion Uh, and in their development and in their interconnections with things. So, for example, Descartes, basing himself on this approach, uh, defined in advance consciousness as fundamentally different from the material world. The material world for him is defined by extension. So, things, you know, exist in space. And then there's some other substance, a fundamentally different substance, uh, which is mind, which is defined by thoughts, right? So, mind has no extension in space whatsoever. It has nothing to do with matter. Uh, And uh, another example would be Bishop Berkeley, another famous idealist philosopher, who said uh, that, uh, you know, you might say that ideas reflect the material world uh, or or an accurate description of it. But he said, I answer, an idea can be like nothing but an idea. A colour or figure can be like nothing but another colour or figure. So the conclusion from that approach, that very formal approach and and an atomising approach, is to erect barriers to understanding from the beginning, to make it impossible to, to understand the relationship between life and thought or matter and thought, which is the whole, the only way you could actually understand it, otherwise it is baffling and mysterious. It's just some sort of spiritual substance that somehow exists. Who knows exactly uh, how? Um, and, that, and, and, and that approach really, I think, still prevails, actually, in the scientific field. Uh, but Marxism, of course, is, is, a, is materialism, uh, dialectical materialism, and uh, not idealism, obviously. So we think that the only thing that exists is the material universe, and therefore ideas are expressions of that, or, or a form of organisation of matter, if you like, a way of matter behaving. Um, but it's not separate, for, and cannot be separate from matter. Um, but the question is how, there, how does it arise then? Because it does seem like this very mysterious uh, thing, very different from matter and we have to explain that. Um, what the idealists say in this scientific age that we live in is that you, know, you can describe how the synapses of the brain work very well. You, know, you can even reproduce a seeing machine if you, if, you, if you like, you can create a seeing machine. In other words, you can create a camera. Um, but there's no personality in any of this. You don't understand how, how someone has a personality or feels things by describing the synapses or the nervous system, no matter in how much depth. Um, that is essentially what they would argue. And, uh, and there is a problem there. There is a problem there, and it's a philosophical problem. It's not really a scientific problem. Um, and uh, and it, this is really known as the mind-body problem. How does thinking, how does feeling... How does personality, how does desire, and how does having an agenda, if you like, how does that suddenly appear in matter, which otherwise would seem to not feel anything or care about anything or want to do anything? That is really the question that we have to ask. Um, Now, although there is a problem uh, in science and it is not fully answered and it does seem a little bit mysterious to us how thought and desire arises out of uh, otherwise dead matter, Um, or unthinking matter. Uh, Nevertheless, I I would say that although we haven't fully finished answering that question, the scientific data, I think, does make it irrefutable that the brain and the nervous system uh, do create thoughts. Uh, It's obvious that if if someone's brain is destroyed, they immediately stop thinking. And I suppose idealists might say, yes, but um, thought uh, only just inhabits the, the brain it is something fundamentally different from the brain. You know, maybe it's the soul and the soul just sort of comes down and inhabits the body. And I've always found that an abs- quite a, a strange idea. You would always think, well, why if the soul is so fundamentally different to the body and has really nothing to do with it, uh, isn't a product of it, then, then why does it hang around in the body for the duration of its existence and then as soon as the body is dead, somehow disappears? That seems a strange coincidence. Um, but actually, we, we can give better examples than that. If someone has a stroke or a lobotomy, they still think, they're still alive, but their thought is uh, demonstrably altered by that experience, if you like. It is, it's, it's, so there's their personality, their, their I-ness, if you like, their sense of self is changed and in some cases is, is, is greatly diminished. And that's from, you know. We, that's a measurable physical change that has taken place. Sci- neuroscientists have also managed to show that definite parts of the brain do correspond to definite kinds of thoughts. And they've done that largely by studying uh, brain lesions. That is where a part of the brain is missing. For, could be for any particular reason, a disease or an injury. Uh, and and in some, when people have some parts of the brain missing, that has very clear effects on their thoughts. So for example... People with damages, uh, with certain kind of damage to their visual cortex, which, of course, is a part of the brain that deals with sight, um, some of them can no longer tell what is moving, even though they can register movement. So you can move something in front of them, and they can say, oh, yeah, something is moving. You say, OK, what is it that's moving in this particular scene? Is it the, you know, any particular object you could point to? They cannot say, no matter how much they stare at it. Everything else about them is perfectly intact but they cannot understand what is moving because of that damage to their visual cortex. There was another person with uh, damage to the area of their brain that dealt with speech, Uh, and this man, in every other way, was an entirely functioning individual, but his entire vocabulary was reduced to simply the word tan, that is T-A-N. That was the only word he could say for the rest of his life. He was still a functioning person and that could understand things, but literally couldn't say anything other than that word. So again, we can see a, a clear relationship there between the brain and thoughts. Um, also, we know th- um, uh, we know how images or how sight is reproduced to such an extent that we can actually tell what someone is looking at by uh, analyzing their brain and The way this happens essentially is that in your retina, there is a grid of cells, um, and when light falls on that grid, you know bits of the grid will you know, <coughs> be hit by blue light and bits of it will be hit by other kinds of light and they those cells obviously are affected in a certain way uh, that then is fed through the optic nerve into the brain and the brain has a corresponding grid of cells within it in the visual cortex which reproduces that exact pattern of colors in the exact same way and that is how we see it's the same with sight where there are sorry it's the same with uh, hearing where there are um, sort of hair like cells in the ear some of which move when a certain pitch uh, is, is produced, others move when a different pitch is produced. And that, again, produces a pattern of which cells are moving and which aren't. That information is fed into the brain, and th- again, there's a corresponding grid of cells. That, um, and when that is reproduced in the brain, that is uh, essentially how we hear. Um, And this is, as I said, this is so advanced, our understanding of it, that we can tell with 99% certainty if we do a brain scan of someone, if they're looking at a cat or if they're looking at a house or whatever it is. Um, And uh, and they've done studies on some monkeys, macaque monkeys, uh, and they have found that by studying the monkey's brain when it's looking at someone without having seen that, the person hasn't seen that person's face, they're just studying what the monkey's brain is producing. And they can tell what that person looks like just by studying the movement of their brain. So, and I think most people perhaps aren't aware of these advances in neuroscience that are really quite amazing. Um, And it's so... I think some of us perhaps, you know, have the... We realise that stuff like this happens, but we tend to think of the personality as one step removed from that. And, you know, there is this um, kind of clichéd idea of... um, in your brain there's like there's a little person watching a projection uh, and then they, that's how sight happens. Which of course wouldn't make any sense because how would that, that person then see? Is there another little person inside their head? And, and this is known as um, Cartesian theatre and I don't have time to go into really why it's wrong. Um, but well, I, what happens is really is that the brain moulds itself, the whole brain changes itself in accordance with what it is seeing. The whole brain is seeing. The whole brain is sort of adapting to what is around. It's not just sort of receiving a, uh, a picture and then watching that picture. You know, um, it is reprodu- It is itself becoming that picture in a sense, if you see what I mean. And that's how it works. Anyway, uh, there are p- if you have damage to your visual cortex such that you can no longer register a certain color, like yellow, let's just say yellow, um, then that doesn't just mean that you can't see yellow when, when you have your eyes open. It means you can no longer remember the color. No matter how many times you have seen it, you cannot reproduce that color even in your mind's eye. Um, so I think we can again see that it's not just about receive, passively receiving information, but it's actually to do with the very question of personality that science has begun to make uh, discoveries um, and, or, or, or imagination. Uh, nevertheless, the idealists say that this hits a barrier. Um, because still personality and feeling are missing. And this is known um, as, uh, as, the, as the problem of qualia. Now, qualia means, in philosophy, how it is to feel something. Uh, and to describe what, what I mean by that, again, to use the example of light, um, if someone has never seen before, It doesn't matter how much I describe the particular wavelength of yellow, they will never know what it feels like to experience yellow. And that is what they're talking about. That's what the idealists say, that you can describe all all you like, the physical properties of things or how the brain works. You never can say what it is like to experience something though until you experience it yourself. And what some of them therefore say is that this this proves idealism or this proves that there is a soul or something. Uh, that there is something beyond just, you know, the matter that is moving in your brain um, uh, that, that escapes description. And it's, it's, ab- it's about pure experience of the soul, you know, that, 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 um, and that's the, only, that's the only explanation that you can give. Uh, and just to quickly debunk this idea, I don't know if you've come across it before, but essentially it's asking that materialism not be materialism. Because if you think about it, consistent materialism would not just dis- help you experience another material object's experience by describing it. You would have to be that material object, in other words, that particular person or animal, in order to know what it is like to be that. So, of course, you can't, I can't describe someone else's brain waves to the nth degree and then somehow be that person and have their experiences. I have to actually have their brain. I have to actually have their nervous system. So, the demand by these idealists that uh, materialism should actually allow you to experience, you know, the qualia of yellowness or whatever it is by simply describing the wavelengths of it is absurd. Obviously, experience, subjective experience or feeling is obviously a product of one object interacting with another object and it can't be experienced outside of that relationship. And that's consistent materialism. Actually, um, Feuerbach explained that a, a very long time ago, but most of these philosophers, I don't think, ever would read Feuerbach, so they, they don't know that. Um, nevertheless, they, they still, I would say that the idealists, to a certain extent, do have a point, not in the sense that idealism is correct, but in that there is a limitation uh, to this science. Um, And that somehow personality and feeling does escape this science, which, as I said, tends to have a quantitative approach. It just looks at the part. It's very reductionistic, you know. Uh, And Marx actually pointed this out. Marx and Engels pointed this out a very long time ago. (coughs) Marx wrote uh, the Theses on Feuerbach, for instance, where he says that materialism up to now has been mechanical and passive, you know. So, yes, it says that the the person is just a material thing, that there's no soul, which is correct, but it it treats that person as a purely passive thing, you know, as something that, (coughs) as like a machine, as like a camera, essentially, that just registers light coming in, but doesn't really see or feel anything. Marx points out that real materialism would explain that the, the living being, or the person, is a sensuous and an active thing, and that's how and why we feel things. Uh, And that gets to the essence of the matter. So Marxist materialism, or dialectical materialism, I think is very different, has a very different approach, uh, philosophical approach, to the kind of crude materialism that you get in much of the sciences. Um, And it has always understood these problems. Um, Trotsky, for example, in his philosophical notebooks, which were never published in his lifetime, but you can read them now. He said the following. He said, Consciousness cannot be reduced to its physiological processes in other words, the nervous system it must have its own laws independent of those bodily processes otherwise it would confer no advantage and would merely be a costly waste now that might seem like a non-materialist thing to say Uh, and he goes on to say that um, you know, if you to give an example of what he means by this he says that if you have a mental disorder you know, if if you're very unhappy and you go to a psychotherapist Generally, that psychotherapist does not talk about, you know, the, the imbalances in your brain or that that does happen to a certain extent, but mainly they discuss through with you your problems, you know, they, dis- on the, they just discuss with you on the level of ideas and experience, if you know what I mean, and they discuss it and they try to help you understand better your problems, perhaps, if they're a good psychotherapist. Um, and, and it wouldn't be very helpful if all they did was say, well, you, you know, you've probably got an imbalance between this part of your brain. It's probably what's happening is making you feel bad is that, you know, this, this, you know, there's this movement taking place in your brain. That wouldn't really help you uh, at all. So that's really what Trotsky is, is, is talking about. What he means is not that the, the, the brain doesn't matter for consciousness, that it's irrelevant. What he means is that what really determines your thought is not your brain itself but it's actually the, the brain is the medium of thought and is a, pr- a necessary condition but what really <coughs> determines it is uh is ideas and, lo- and logic and, and experience of the physical world um and and how you disprove someone is on the level of ideas um, and i'll come on to i think we'll come on to understand more of what i mean by this difference as we go through the talk lenin also said a similar thing also in his philosophical notebooks He said, consciousness consciousness not only reflects the world, it also creates it. Philosophical idealism is only nonsense from the standpoint of crude materialism. But from the standpoint of dialectical materialism, idealism is just a one-sided and exaggerated development of one of the features of consciousness. So, in other words, idealism did have a point materialism always tended to see uh, thinking as a purely passive thing as something that just receives information but it actually creates things itself It actually has its own characteristics Um, and uh, and so yeah we need to explore this idea further because I would imagine at this point it does sound a little bit like Trotsky and Lenin were idealists who think that ideas sort of float above the material world somehow which of course is uh, not what they they thought at all so, yes, we need to look at this on a dialectical materials level and not just on, in, t- in terms of the parts. We need to see the whole of the process. Now, to give some examples of what I mean, because I've been talking about the limitations uh, in neuroscience and the science of thoughts uh, that you have uh, in mainstream, um, both in philosophy and in science, to give you some examples of, of the, the limitations or the errors that they make. Uh, Max Tegmark, for example, has argued that consciousness is actually a state of matter, a new state of matter, like, you know, solidity, liquidity, etc. And he's called it perceptronium. Uh, And this maybe is how we think, that somehow the brain, uh, just by accident or something, developed a new kind of matter, a new state of matter. And once you have that, that's it, you're conscious, that's what consciousness is. Which is absurd, and also, even if it were true, it would explain nothing. It, it reminds me of the old era in in science when they thought that heat uh, was uh, a product of phlogiston which was a particle they made up and if something was hot it had more phlogiston uh, of course it was wrong uh, heat comes from um, from the behavior of atoms essentially uh, and but if it were true it still wouldn't explain anything you'd still have to stu- then study phlogiston and discover why it has these characteristics just Giving a, a, a particle or a state of matter to something doesn't really uh, explain anything uh, whatsoever. Um, to give another example, a very recent example from last month's uh, New Scientist on the 8th of September this year, said the following Consciousness is amongst some scientists. A widely held view sees consciousness as the unintended byproduct of information rushing through the closed loop of connections that is the brain consciousness can't help existing despite serving no particular purpose just like the noise emitted by a running engine which has no bearings on the work no bearing on the workings of the engine itself that's quite an astonishing statement. So, con- no, I can't possibly imagine what advantage it is to be conscious in the... No, hum- humans, of course, have no advantages whatsoever over other animals. I mean, really, like, how, d- how does that someone come to this idea? The reason... What they mean is they're studying the particles of the nervous system. And what they're saying is we don't need consciousness to explain how uh, an organism does anything. You know, we can explain me talking, for example, by studying you know, the, the neurons moving and the, you know, the um, information going down the nervous system and then we can study how the, how the, the larynx works and how the muscles move, etc. All of this doesn't take any account of consciousness, of ideas, etc. You can explain how someone talks purely on that kind of reductionist physical level. But of course, you're not really explaining anything. You're only explaining the medium of talk, how it is that I am managing to articulate myself, but not why I'm, articul- that I'm articulating myself and why in this particular way. Uh, that is what is totally absent from this question, and it's quite astonishing that they don't realise this gap. And if that were true, if they were true that if it were true that consciousness is merely a byproduct of an organ, like just an accidental byproduct. Then surely humans today would think in exactly the same way they did a thousand years ago. Since we're the same fundamentally, we haven't really evolved at all in the last a thousand years. We are essentially physiologically identical. But I would say our ideas and the experience that we have subjectively is quite dramatically different from what it was a thousand years ago. Well let's take a more extreme example, a hundred thousand years ago. When we were still the same species, but in some cases, uh, you know, hadn't even developed, um, you know, hadn't developed art, hadn't developed agriculture. Tool making was at its absolute barest beginnings. I think the human personality and subjective experience would have been pretty different then. Um, that's something this science doesn't think is relevant at all. It, it treats that as totally irrelevant. Uh, and I think this leads on to these errors that you get uh, in... Uh, and this kind of concern that exists about consciousness—sorry, about AI—that you have. Now, there is a separate uh, concern which I don't—I I won't really go into because I think that's more of an economics discussion. Which is, what if, you know, uh, robots take over all of our jobs? and I think that's separate to this question. Um, but you know, we get this other fear that maybe robots are going to become super intelligent and sort of s- supersede us, and maybe they'll become really power-hungry. Mm-hmm and want to destroy us, that's the kind of fear, you know, that you have in a few stereotypes in a few films. Um, and it gets this, and, you know, get people like Elon Musk saying, like, this is, you know, a very serious threat. Uh, it could be in a matter of years that the sort of master race of, of uh, robots are going to take over. And um, it sh- this really shows no understanding of what consciousness is about. It treats consciousness as if it's merely the product of fast computing. So when we get a really, really fast computer, then it will have consciousness. And you just think, well, what would it think about? Where would it get its desire to... If it is going to decide to sort of take over and enslave humanity, where, where would the desire for that come from? I mean when humans enslave other humans it's obviously because it's pleasurable not to have to work and it's pleasurable to have a lot of luxuries in life really that is the reason for it and therefore it's because we live and it's because we feel pain and it's because we have desire built into us because we are living breathing and suffering animals that's obviously fundamentally where it comes from why would a computer program desire any of these things where wh- where would it get that personality from that wants to punish or oppress other people uh, it's quite uh, inexplicable and the reality is is that ai is a very useful tool and is, is developing very rapidly and it's quite fascinating and as it does so it is for example machine learning you know and neural nets etc are mimicking aspects of how humans think which is uh, interesting and it does tell us something about consciousness but they are very far away from being conscious. it's not just like a quantitative question as if they're 10% of the way and then in 10 years they'll be 20% it's not about that it's a qualitative question they're doing something fundamentally different there was a documentary on TV the other day called the joy of AI on BBC4 And it has some interesting examples of just how stupid AI is in some ways. And I'm not saying this to sort of (laughs) insult it and say, no, it's really very stupid. This is to show how it's something completely different. So, for example, uh, the guy who was presenting it went around and showed it pictures of dogs, showed an AI program pictures of dogs, and it had to guess what they were. A lot of the time it got it right, but occasionally it would come up with a completely different example. There's another example of where an AI has been shown a video of a polar bear and frame by frame it guesses what it is and most of the frames it says polar bear, polar bear, polar bear. Occasionally it will suddenly say mongoose or like so something completely unrelated to a polar bear and it's because of some weird correlation of pixels that apparently that something we wouldn't realise it has some sort of pattern in common with what a pattern of a mongoose would have. So it says oh yeah it's a mongoose. Now I don't understand fully the science behind this AI and why exactly it makes that mistake But one thing is clear is that a human would never watch a polar bear and suddenly think, oh, my God, it's a mongoose. Oh, no, it's a polar bear. (laughs) And the reason for that is mainly is because we understand how the world works because we've lived in it and because we have an interest in understanding how it works because we need to survive. So we just know that logically that would never, ever occur. It would be just it would defy all of the laws of experience that we've ever, uh, uh, ever had. and, and, of course, an AI doesn't do that, and it doesn't have any sense of what a polar bear is. It just recognises a, a, a pattern, essentially. Pol- polar bear doesn't mean anything to it. It doesn't have a sense of what the North Pole is or anything like that. So it makes that kind of error. And there were two other errors that a different uh, AI in the programme made. One of them, it asked the presenter what it, who his favourite fo- footballer is. And he said, anyone who plays for Leeds United... Mm-hmm and uh, <laughs> apparently there's there's a, a 1970s program um on the bbc called leeds united which is actually about a strike in leeds um which might be quite interesting and it was called leeds united and it because it has this sort of vast knowledge of everything that ever happened uh, it, it it was able to draw upon that so if for some reason it decided it was more likely that he meant that then the football club, even though it had asked him about football. So it started saying to him, oh, yes, so did you like that? Uh, did you like that TV show? Uh, which was bizarre. And again, no human would make that error for obvious reasons, because we understand what, what, what would be the more likely of the two for him to mean because we've met human beings before and we are humans ourselves. It also asked him what his favorite video game is. And he said, well, I haven't played one for about 20 years, but the last one I played was this and what it says is "Oh, okay did you know that there's a sequel to that coming out and it's uh," and he was like no I'm obviously not interested in computer games because I haven't played one for 20 years any human would pick up on that again because we've lived and we've met people and we know what it is to not do something for 20 years and what all of the implications of that are so machine uh, learning is a step forward, but it has real difficulty in generalizing. And uh, there are some people who are saying that, for example, self-driving cars might be decades, or you know, even further away, because they're hitting a plateau actually of their development. That they they can't actually understand what is going on around them. And so they do again. They similar to the polar bear example. They're driving along. They see a person. And then they suddenly think it's a plastic bag and they just drive into it and and kill them. Which again, no human would do. And there are times when, I'm sure you've all had it, when you suddenly glance at something and you can't tell what it is, you weren't expecting to see it and you completely misread what that object is in front of you. I think we've all done that. And then it's kind of like, you suddenly go like that and you realize what it is and it's something completely different. So we do make a similar mistake, but we certainly wouldn't do it whilst, after we've identified it, what it is. Um, and suddenly decide that a human is a plastic bag like there's no way that that would happen um, and that is because of the um, I think it 's because AI does not live it is just trapped in a machine it doesn't want to, to experience anything doesn't care about anything it's just a passive tool in a very circum used in very circumscribed narrow uh, circumstances according to our interests and that's why it's not going to suddenly decide it's not going to suddenly come to an understanding of what society is and that it would, would rather enjoy being like the king or the lord of all society or something. There's just no way that that will occur. And also I would say that the fear over the development of this is interesting when you, when you read about it. Both the fear over whether or not we might create a master race of robots and also the fear, the more realistic fear, that they might take our jobs. When you read about that, and it's, they always talk to scientists about this, uh, because, of course, they're the people who know uh, about the science of it. And they never make the obvious point that if there are dangers with AI, that capitalism can't deal with that. Because the nature of capitalism is just to churn out technology in a competitive way, with no, you know, to hell with the consequences. You know, and so AI will develop rapidly because it's very advantageous for companies to have it. Uh, and we can just watch what this, all of this unfolding and we can watch jobs being destroyed. We won't be able to do anything about it because under capitalism we don't control, we don't plan the economy. Uh, nobody ever makes that point. They talk about it as if it's purely a technological question. Um, uh, when in reality it's a social question. Um, <clears throat> another example of the difference between AI and human thought is in memory. And this is one of the reasons that computers are very useful. Their memory is better than ours. Um, we all know this. Obviously, if you write down an essay on a computer and then you load it back up, it's exactly as you wrote it. Um, you can't remember it very accurately, of course, yourself. And that's very useful. But it also just demonstrates the same problem with computer thought, if, if you can call it thought. Um, which is that, they're, again, they're not alive and they don't desire anything, right? They don't want to do anything in particular. And so their memories mean nothing to them. Well, the reason that human memory is so unreliable is, is it, to in a certain extent, it's a very good thing. Because what are you doing when you remember something? You're not recreating it perfectly. And actually, you're weighing it all up in relation to other experience that you've had. You know, you're, you're, you're thinking, oh yeah, I did that. But then, since then, I've done these other And that makes me realise this. And maybe this other element of that was more important than I realised before, etc. So you're critically evaluating it in relation to yourself, in relation to your life and your interests. And of course, that is something that um, a computer can't do and, and wouldn't want to do. wouldn't want to be flexible with its memory. We don't want it to be flexible with its memory. And that, again, demonstrates a fundamental difference, I think, between how, how computers work and, and what real thoughts and consciousness actually are. Um, and it comes down to the question of life and what it is to be alive. Uh, life is, is quite... The problem of life and what life is is quite analogous Similar problem, really, to the problem of thoughts. Because life also appears to be this mysterious and invisible force that inhabits things. You know, when someone dies, uh, their body is essentially usually intact. is identical, really. It's got all the same parts there. But something has disappeared. And that something is, is invisible. You can't see it go. It's not like a soul that flies out of the room. And yet, it seems to be decisively important. Because without that spark, whatever it is, They're totally gone. And of course some people again conclude that this proves that there is a soul, that there's an invisible soul. In reality, life is a form of organisation of matter that doesn't exist anywhere in the sense that it's not an object that can be taken out and looked at. It's a form of organisation across an organism, if you like, or across a species in reality. And it is built up gradually over time. And life doesn't evolve because it's good for it to exist. You know, because God wanted it to exist. It evolves simply because it can. Once molecules exist which can reproduce themselves and can find food to keep on reproducing, not for any particular reason, it's just is the function of some molecules to do that. It's called RNA, which is related to DNA. Once that exists, then it will exist, obviously, and it will survive and it will reproduce. And if any animal evolves which doesn't try to survive which doesn't try to eat, then obviously it will die and will cease to exist. So by definition, the animals that exist are the ones that have this capacity um, to, 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 to strive for survival. And that is a really key question for consciousness. And again, it demonstrates the difference between consciousness and computers. And it goes back to this question of qualia, why it feels a certain way to be alive and to experience things, and why a camera, no matter how advanced it is, never really sees anything you know it registers light obviously and it reproduces it but it doesn't see it doesn't really experience what it is seeing if if you see what i mean and that's obviously because it's not alive if you look at a robot for example the component parts of a robot uh, are completely indifferent to the rest of the of the creature if you could call it the, to the rest of the robot the metal of its of its limbs for example is not in any way alive it doesn't really do anything unless it's fed an external source of energy and told what to do. Whereas any part of a human body, any limb or any cell, is an amazingly complicated thing that kind of contains within itself the whole prehistory of evolution that has taken place that has been preserved from generation to generation and species to species in every single cell the complexity of a single cell is mind-boggling even within a tiny cell there are (coughs) different parts there are sort of mini factories that produce certain things there's even if you like the equivalent of a nervous system within a cell it's astonishingly complex the whole organism lives literally every part of it strives to stay alive and is interested in the survival if you like of of the organism and of the species that's how it works whereas a robot is just a passive tool a very advanced one but just a passive uh, tool uh, for humans and I think that that it's that is a I can't stress enough that is an absolutely vital question for the for answering the question of consciousness it's willpower it's desire to be alive it's the desire to do things that that gives us emotion and in turn thoughts. And in philosophy, traditionally, it was thought of as the other way around. For example, again, Descartes thought that thought was pure rationality, was pure reason, right? Disinterested reason. And then emotion was this kind of stupid kind of error that kind of clouded reason, you know, this kind of unthinking thing that was beneath reason and, and, and should be kind of stripped out and that's the usual way that we think about it. If someone thinks with emotion then they must be wrong or something. Now of course that is true. We should try not to be emotional when we take decisions. We should try to be objective. But actually I think it's the other way around. Emotion is more important if you like for thought than rational. Th- rational thought is kind of like the cherry on the cake if you like. It's, it serves emotion. We, what, it, what is rationality anyway? It is something that we use to live better. It's something that we use to make sense of the world so that we can live better. Really, that if you want to boil it down to one thing, that's what it's about. And if we didn't desire anything, if we didn't feel pain, then of course, it would be impossible to develop rational thought and objective ideas and correct ideas because there'd be no desire to, there'd be no, it would be, you know, there'd be no reason to develop this, this way of thinking at all. Um, and so this brings us on to the question of what rational thought is, actually, and what distinguishes, because much of what I've described, I think, really applies to animals as well, which, of course, do feel things and they do have desires, etc. Uh, but the difference with humans is that we think, right? Uh, but what is, what is that? That's, you know, that's kind of a tautology of, it. obviously, we define ourselves as things that think, and then, well, we're the things that think. doesn't really answer anything. What is it to think? Um... And thought is to do with generalisation and abstraction. That's really what it is to think. It's to to abstract. And that's what animals don't do, obviously, although some animals do it to a rudimentary degree. But, you know, you make a generalisation or an abstraction. And what is that? Well, it's to... Instead of just seeing an object in front of you and just experiencing it as an individual object and reacting to it in an instinctive way, to think about it is to to, to abstract, is to say, okay, well, this has this general feature if you want to make a tool for cutting you know like a, the first humans the first tools they came up with the flint tools etc you need to have the abstraction of sharpness you need to realize what sharpness is and you need to be I- able to identify that certain objects would correspond to that would, would be able to to become sharp if you cut them in a certain way uh, and therefore you need to have these general ideas now the problem with this of course and this is get, brings us back to the problem of consciousness that you have in philosophy uh, is that these ideas that we have, these abstractions, these generalizations, like sharpness, uh, fast, slow, cause, effect, you know, any idea that we use to explain the world. If you actually think about it, they don't really, where are they? Uh, you know, where, is, where are these abstractions? A a cliched idea is the idea of a perfect circle, which doesn't exist. There is no such thing as a perfect circle. Everything we think of as a a circle, if you actually look at it, is never actually a circle, right? It's always imperfect in some way. Um, And so what some philosophers have said is, well, where do these universalizations come from, these abstractions come from? What are they? And most of the philosophers in history, the idealists, said that, well, these universalizations, these universals are, are the truth. That's what is, you know, that's what things really are. They are more perfect than the imperfect world. Now, this is, for example, what Plato famously said, the imperfect world of material objects. And therefore, they're somehow better than and prior to the material world these ideas that we have which give us so much power are sort of like a magical force that comes from some other world you know or the world of thoughts and the real world seems to be imperfect and full of death and decay and you know etc and then other philosophers like the empiricist or epicurus said that no Earth, actually it's the other way around that the, the thoughts don't really exist at all they're just conventions and they're basically meaningless, you know, they're just sort of things that we use to get by, but they're not true, you know, because nothing really is a perfect circle. You know, everything is, every single object is different from every other object and is always in, imperfect, if you like. Therefore, these ideas are sort of, they actually prevent us from seeing things as they really are and they're illusions. And that, that's what other philosophers have said. Um, and the way Marxists resolve and dialectical materialists resolve this problem of, of thought then and how we do have and whether or not we have accurate knowledge and accurate ideas of things um, is of course dialectically Uh, and we understand that these abstractions do exist they are real if you like and in a sense they are the most true thing that there is but they don't exist as objects right they don't exist sort of you know you know they're not things that you can pick up and look at so abstractions like cause and effect or hot and cold they're generalizations of the real movement of the universe the real ways that things behave you know, in real existence if you like, over time so yes, each individual object is an imperfect circle or whatever it may be nothing conforms to the idea that we have of them perfectly but that's because it is only a moment in time, it is the sort of sum total of all of these objects moving that creates these kind of patterns, if you like. And that's really what it is. That's what these abstractions are. We're recognising patterns. And patterns uh, exist over time and in space. And that's what really thought grasps towards. It's not just the particular. It's not just the here and now. But it's the process. And that's what Marxism really teaches. It's what dialectical thinking is with the first mode of thought which really understands that. Um, And that's why it's so powerful. And... But it, what also stumped philosophers then is well, how do we have these ideas then? And and, and the empiricists said that ideas come from experience. You know, we experience things, and uh, and that's we don't we're not born with ideas of circles or anything else, but we experience circular objects, and then we make the abstraction. Now that's something that Marxists broadly agree with, but the problem with it, of course is that no one individual really has the sum total of this experience. And what the empiricists ended up concluding is, the, again, we don't really know where these ideas come from. We think they come from experience, but that doesn't seem to be justified. What Marxists say is that they come from the sum total of the experience of humanity. And that brings us to the question of labor, which is what really defines society. And again, this question of, of consciousness being an active thing, not just a passive receiver of information. Um, I've, I've got to kind of rush towards the end because I've spoken for 45 minutes um, but labour is an absolutely essential ingredient in the question of consciousness uh, because, why? Because for the first time we have something to talk about and it's that that gives the impetus to having ideas and I would encourage you, I think we've got some for sale I would encourage you to buy and read Engels' um, The Part Played by Labour in the Transition from Ape to Man, in which he brilliantly demonstrates that it's not the brain that creates thought uh, and this goes get back again to this idea that Trotsky talked about. That it's not the physiology of us that creates thought, right? It's not the brain that creates thought. Otherwise, every person would think in the same way. And someone existing outside of society would have just the same ideas that everyone else has since they've got the same nervous system. But it's labor that creates thought. In other words, it's changing the world. It's developing tools in order to live in a different way that creates culture and society and the history that we have at our fingertips. And that... When you labour, when you create things, you need to have abstractions because you need to be able to say how you made that thing so that you can make it again. And you need to communicate that knowledge to your children or other people in your society. And, and of course, therefore, you need to simplify and to generalise. So, and so if you actually look at the history of humanity and, and if you look at studies that they've done of people who still live in, you know, as, as hunter-gatherers, you can see how thought really is different when people don't use tools or the tools they use are extremely minimal. For example, there are various tribes that still exist today that are more or less uncontacted. or Of course, they're not completely uncontacted because people have uh, studied them. And some of them don't have numbers. Uh, they have only words for a few or like not very many and many. And that's it. Everything that is above about four is just many. And they don't have any maths. They also don't have a creation myth. They don't have, you know, um, um, stories about how, they, how their people came into being, etc. They don't have, if you like, a, a religion at all. And that's, I think, because the, the, they don't need those things because they, they live in a very basic way and the tools they use are extremely basic and they live in a part of the world where that's sufficient for them to live on. So really, c- consciousness and the development of ideas really does depend on the creation of tools and a more complex society uh, that we live in. And therefore, it is a social question. To go back to this example from Trotsky about, you know, its uh, ideas don't come from the brain or they don't, they're not caused by the nervous system. The nervous system is merely the medium for expressing these ideas. Ideas are created by society, specifically by a society that lives off of labour, that works, that creates tools. And such a society as that, of course, creates an abundance of concepts because it does a lot of things. There's a lot of discoveries, there's a lot of... Uh, things that we need to talk about and that we need to be able to understand in order to continue living in that way. And such a society therefore produces this wealth of culture and ideas that we use to have the personalities that we have. And therefore the individual personality, the individual consciousness is not an individual thing. We have the individual personality that we have thanks to the world around us, thanks to the other people You know, you wouldn't have the the individuality that you have if it weren't not just for the people immediately around you, not just for the people in the totality of the world right now, but actually the whole preceding history of all humanity. That's what has allowed for the creation of music, of film, of literature, and everything else that gives us the opinions that we have and the feelings that we have, you know. These things have been cultivated and developed through labor over time. That is how consciousness works. Um, it's not just the brain, it's not just having like a really advanced brain with lots and lots of neurons in it. That is not the quest. that is a necessary condition, but it is not the actual cause of ideas and if you like, of consciousness itself. Um, so finally, really the last thing I want to say then is that if consciousness is a social question and is produced in society, Um, Then, of course, a society that is divided against itself, a society that doesn't have any control over itself, in other words, a capitalist society, right? A society of rich and poor, is a society inevitably that is not fully consciousness, that is alienated in its ideas, that can't really understand itself. And isn't that the case today? To go back to what I said at the beginning, Marxism explains the phenomena that we see in society, explains why there is this massive economic crisis, you know. Um, But it can't be used, it can't be discussed. People are kept ignorant of that. And absolute nonsense ideas, like the ideas that you have in economics departments around the world, which are just drivel, which are just total rubbish, which don't explain anything about how economics works, and which most of them themselves more or less admit they have no idea about how. They are scientists who study this whole system their whole lives and apparently they don't understand it. So consciousness is, is, if you like, diminished. We are not fully self-conscious under capitalism as a species because we cannot understand what we are, what we're doing. We cannot control what we're doing. And Therefore, to become fully conscious is a question of the class struggle. When you see phenomena like the development of the Corbyn movement in Britain, when you see people going out onto the streets, when you see people questioning how society is run and beginning to ask questions of how we can run it differently, that is a development in consciousness because that is society saying to itself or a part of society saying why does society work in this way why are we doing what we're doing and how can we do it better so it's a a higher degree of self-consciousness that has arisen um, in through the class struggle and therefore to to, to finish to really attain full self-consciousness of course we have to overthrow capitalism we have to as a species collectively and consciously control our resources and our production and and understand what we're doing and solve our problems once and for all and and only then can we say that humanity really is self-conscious Thank you for tuning in to IMTV Radio Subscribe or download the podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud or visit www.socialist.net for all the latest news, analysis and Marxist ideas.